I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. Very often during this series of podcasts of Why Parliament Works, I've spoken to former senior ministers whose proudest moment has been delivering legislation. Lord Young, George Young mentioned it, as did William Hague, who piloted through the disability rights legislation in 1995. William said this to us. When I, when I think back to 1995, it's the Disability Discrimination Act, and uh, I always say that's that's one of my proudest achievements in politics and definitely my proudest legislative achievement. Um, that was a year of constant um, negotiation and discussion uh, of, of mapping out from, uh, to begin with what I would like to have been in a, in a, in a, discri in a disability discrimination act. It, it took that year of my life completely to, to do that. Very worthwhile. Um, uh, and I loved doing it as well. We had a successful outcome as well. But that's what it's like. It's a constant daily back and forth and, and all of those different views in parliament and government are informed by a multitude of different organisations and individuals outside parliament who, through that process, will be lobbying for legislation to take a particular form. So it's quite a process taking a major bill through parliament. But today it's more exciting because it's up to date. And I'm with Victoria Atkins, who is still in the final throes of piloting through uh, the domestic abuse bill, a really pioneering piece of legislation. And Victoria, first of all, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, I would love to know how you've done this, how you've seen it through from the beginning, and the many obstacles that get placed in the way of legislation. Mm. Well, I, it's such a pleasure to be talking about this, and, and particularly in the context of the Domestic Abuse Bill, which, as you've rightly described, it's a landmark piece of legislation. Uh, there are at least 2.3 million adult victims of domestic abuse in this country, and that doesn't include children who are living in those households as well. And we know that domestic abuse has a huge impact, a horrible impact on victims and their families. Uh, it can take many forms. It may be physical violence, but it can also, as the bill is making clear, extend to sexual, emotional uh, and other forms of abuse. And so this bill, I truly believe, is going to be able to help an enormous number of people through its various measures. It's been a huge privilege to work on it. And uh, we, we're very much looking forward to now having the bill in force so that um, its beginning, you know, its practical effects roll out across the country. And, and the bill has been a model of legislative procedure in a way because it had very careful draft scrutiny. Did you find that helped and that there were lots of good ideas that came in as the bill was being... Very much so. It was absolutely invaluable. So the, the process of the bill um, started with a public consultation uh, and we received something like 3,000 responses to that. That helped us uh, shape the draft bill. Uh, we then appointed a joint committee of both uh, members of parliament and peers 
to look at the draft bill, to take evidence from experts, charities and so on, uh, so that they could put forward recommendations as to the shape of um, the bill and what it should look like when it was introduced before the House of Commons. Uh, we very much took those recommendations on board, uh, rejigged, retweaked, um, and then uh, we introduced it to the House of Commons. Um, and then I'm afraid external political events, if I can put it that way, um, intervened. And um, this bill has, uh, we've had general election, we've had um, uh, a change of uh, prime minister. Um, but what I'm so proud of is that even with these external, very insignificant, you know, really important political events, uh, we have nonetheless kept the bill going. And uh, I, I was very, very um, proud that the government continued with the bill in the midst of the first lockdown, which, Jacob, you all know as leader um, of the House, uh, there were very few pieces of legislation uh, that the House could consider at that time. This bill was one of them, and um, it is in a much, much better shape now because of all the scrutiny that it's had uh, than it was three years ago when I first saw the draft bill. So it's been a marathon, but I very much hope that uh, victims and survivors will, will see it as time well spent and they will really benefit from it. And one of the reasons we were able to continue with it during the first stage of the lockdown was it had such widespread cross-party support and therefore we could get the second reading through without a division. But it must have been frustrating having to reintroduce it, having introduced it in the previous session and done a lot of work on it and then found you had to start again. Um, it, it, it was more sort of um, a wish just to get it going so that we could... Uh, uh, get to a stage where it's it's helping people on the ground. I mean, uh, we obviously focus on the legislation, on the on the journey through both houses, um, but actually the reason for this bill, as the Prime Minister has made clear, is to help those 2.3 million victims. And so, um, it it and it, it was it was a really. Uh, it was a real honour, actually, to be involved in the various stages, even if we were having to repeat one or two um, stages uh, because of external events. Um, and it, I never, ever um, struggled as a minister to... Um, find something to say and I know that was across the house you know this wasn't a bill where you were repeating the speech you may have given before every single parliamentarian has contributed something very powerful I think to this bill. And having that level of cross-party support as you were introducing the bill um, is not typical of parliament is it or certainly not typical of the image of parliament that people think we're always hammer and tongs at each other but actually you had a lot of support from the Labour benches, uh, the SNP and all the other parties. It, it, it's been, if I may say so, the model of uh, cross-party working together. But, you know, that hasn't meant that we don't have disagreements. We, you know, there have been genuine um, disagreements as to some of the measures um, talked about in the House. But um, the, we've all been very clear that the motivations of everyone is to make progress on this and to help victims. So um, it's been a real pleasure actually working with colleagues across the House and, and I've been very um, very keen to listen to ideas and suggestions and, and even where we can't agree on an amendment, let's say, um, valid concerns have been raised, let's say, about the treatment of um, disabled people by carers who, to whom they are not related or um, to whom they, with whom they're not in a relationship. Those are genuine concerns. We want to try and address those concerns. We may not be able to do it through the bill, but we will find other ways of trying to help. And before it gets to the House of Commons, you obviously have to get the government on board and process of right rounds. Did you have to do a lot of 
lobbying to get the individual measures in the bill agreed, or was it, as much as anything, trying to get the legal wording right to give effect to what you wanted to achieve? Again, it's been a model of cross-government working. So um, very often other ministers have been even more impatient than me to get the bill going. Uh, And it's been a huge uh, process in terms of cross-government working. I mean, I remember I had one briefing. We have these ministerial briefings before um, each session of the committee stage, which is where the House scrutinises the bill line by line. Uh, And they're really intensive stages in, in in the... Uh, parliamentary process and I remember one briefing where I had something like 30 or more officials from across Whitehall in the meeting to help with various um, points that were going to be raised in bill committee that day and so it really shows just what government can do when we're really really committed really working together uh, and very clear as to the direction of travel so I've got measures in the bill that involve in no particular order um, uh, MHCLG housing for example really important important. We're bringing in a revolutionary duty on local councils to provide specialist services to people who are in safe accommodation. Uh, I've got involvement from the Department of Health. Uh, We've got uh, DfE involved. I mean, a huge raft of departments that have each got a stake in this bill. And I will very much be working afterwards to ensure it has the power we would want it to have. One of the things I've been discussing in this series of why Parliament works is the sort of hidden wiring. What's so interesting about what you've just said is how seriously you were taking the committee stage, that you weren't thinking, well, the government's got a majority, we'll get this through. You were thinking, I need 30 people to brief me so that I can answer all the questions that are being raised, and that that helps form and shape the bill and um, pushes the legislation through. And I think that's fascinating to understand that a bit better and how seriously parliamentarians are listened to by the sponsoring ministry. Uh, very much so. And, and, you know, I'm conscious that there are colleagues in the, across the House who have different experiences and different uh, um, qualifications uh, in certain areas. So, for example, um, our dear friend, Dame Cheryl Gillen, who's just uh, sadly passed away, she was an expert on uh, how to help people living uh, with autism. And uh, she was very concerned to ensure that the bill could address the needs of of victims um, who are grappling with autism and who are also uh, victims of abuse. Uh, Another colleague gave a very, very moving speech about his own experiences as a child living in an abusive household. Uh, And of course, across the House, um, we had the uh, Labour Member of Parliament for Canterbury giving her own experiences as a survivor. And so I think, you know, I would hope that any minister with the responsibility of bringing legislation through the House would do everything they possibly can to listen to parliamentarians as well as charities and survivors and so on, but also to ask their officials, you know, what can we do to address this? And having the level of support you had is a great help in almost all respects. The difficulty is everybody wants to stop domestic abuse and domestic violence, but how do you make law effective? How do you um, turn a good intention into something that allows the various functions of government to reduce the incidence of domestic violence? And that must have been the most complex part of this process. 
Um, it, it is incredibly complex, particularly when we are dealing um, with issues uh, of consent, for example. If one looks at the the work that went into the um, so-called rough sex defence that was clarified. We, we put an amendment down working with uh, Harriet Harman and uh, Mark Garnier. We put an amendment down to clarify the law on that because uh, we, we were getting the message loud and clear that this was a, a huge issue um, that should be dealt with in this bill. So too with non-fatal strangulation that um, uh, we have just uh, assisted with in the Lords, putting that amendment down. Uh, these are incredibly important issues that have a real impact on people's lives but they're also very as you say very technical legal issues and it, it I, I, I dare I say it as a, as a former barrister um, I think that definitely helped me with some of these um, legal issues because I I don't need the law of consent explained to me or, you know, the, the technicalities of recklessness, etc. Um, uh, just having that background really, really helped uh, navigate our way through some of those very technical issues. And both in the Commons and then in the Lords. The Lords is always a bit of a mystery to members of the House of Commons, I think, until they engage with it directly. And then you find that all sorts of people with great experience and interest are, are involved and lots of lawyers as well to make sure every legal detail is is right. Um, how did you find the interaction with the Lords? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I have the, uh, I had the privilege of uh, serving as um, PPS to the leader of the Lords uh, before I was appointed minister. And, um, and so I had some understanding and knowledge and indeed respect for uh, their Lordships. But you're quite right. If you're asked by a, a law lord um, what your view is on this particular very technical aspect, uh, you really have to know your stuff. And, and so uh, I found it a really interesting process. We, we, again, um, both both uh, the Lords Minister Susan Williams, Baroness Williams and I have been very, very open and, and, and keen to meet uh, peers to talk through their concerns. We've been able, I'm happy to say, through that process to address some of their concerns directly. Uh, and, and then obviously other matters have been raised on the floor of the House, as it should be. Uh, and it's for the government to respond and to persuade and and to um, come up with other ideas if we're not able to agree on the way a particular amendment is drafted. And although the Lords is unelected, it seems to me there's a very democratic process that takes place because they come up with their suggestions. It then comes back to the House of Commons for the House of Commons with the democratic legitimacy to decide whether to include these aspects or not. And in this period, the Commons has been receiving, or MPs individually, lots of correspondence from constituents expressing their views on, on what happens. And as a general point, I wonder if it gives you confidence, as it does to me, in how our democracy works, that there is an involvement of the voters all the way through these processes who follow what is going on with considerable attention. Oh, very much so. And in fact, one of the things that I suspect... Um, uh, you know, not many people talk about, ministers talk about, but it's it's not just about the work in this building. It's all the work that one does in one in in the department. So the the piles of correspondence that any minister will receive on any given subject, of course, they have a particular um, poignancy if they're written by a survivor about a piece of legislation that you're um, navigating at, at that point in time. And so, I have found um, the correspondence that I've received from members, constituents, incredibly powerful. Uh, and, you know, I read every single letter that is um, sent to me. I, I answer personally. 
Um, and I think it's, I think that's a really important part, perhaps away from this building, but it's a really important part of our democracy. And then, of course, when it comes to ping pong, um, this very um, rather, rather mysterious, even to, I think, members of parliament uh, process, whereby the Lords send their amendments to us and we send them back or agree with them. Um, that, that's a whole different level of uh, scrutiny and engagement because you're, you know, there will be times uh, where the Commons just does not agree with their lordships. Um, I'm happy to say in this bill, we received something like 86 amendments from their lordships. And uh, we worked, indeed, we worked very considerably with peers on a number of those amendments. So we've been able to accept the overwhelming majority. And uh, we're left with, I think, 12 sets of amendments with which we can't agree. And, and that will be, you know, that's been sent back to the House of Lords and consideration and so on. And I find this fascinating from the Leader of the House's office point of view, seeing the concession strategy that the government draws up. And it's always looking to come to an agreement, isn't it? That the default position is not, no, no, this is somebody else's idea, we're not interested. It's how do we make this work? And very often, refusal of amendment is practicality rather than disagreeing with the objective, particularly in a bill like yours. Very much so. And, and um, I, I've been very clear throughout that if we can't um, agree to an amendment for, as you say, um, technical or other reasons, um, let's see if there's a practical non-legislative way that we can deal with some of those concerns. So, for example, a huge issue throughout both houses' consideration of the bill has been the treatment of migrant victims. Uh, and we haven't been able to agree um, with the amendments put forward, both at common stage and at the Lord stage, but we have instead um, announced, and indeed we're in the middle of, uh, about to launch uh, a separate scheme specifically for migrant victims to try to help uh, with the issues that uh, colleagues have articulated so eloquently. Uh, and so that is a very practical measure that will be, you know, be helping victims as soon as the scheme is launched. But it, it, we've just been not been able to agree on, on the wording within the legislation. So the practical scheme is, is what we're doing instead. And this requires a lot of goodwill between all the interested parties, as you were saying, cross-party working. But ultimately, this is going to make people's lives better. You are going through what you have done. I mean, as William Hague did with his disability rights bill, people will look back in 20 years' time and say, Victoria Atkins helped people. This must be so important as a politician and is in a way about the essence of politics. It's an extraordinary privilege, um, and not least because my background, I uh, used to uh, prosecute criminals before I was elected to the House. And in your early years um, of training, you know, you're in the magistrate's courts, you're, you're dealing perhaps with lower level um, offences. And I remember turning up at magistrate's courts and there would be um, cases where there's domestic violence um, and you have the photographs, you, you know the physical um, damage that has been done to uh, a victim. Uh, you see it, you want to prosecute that case. And yet, Back in the day, 15 years ago or so ago, um, we didn't understand domestic abuse in the same way that we do today. And very often those victims, those women whose photographs I had before me, whose cases I wanted to um, prosecute, um, they had made a withdrawal statement. In other words, they'd said they don't want to continue with the prosecution. And so it's as much for those victims as for the victims today and in the future that this bill means so much. Um, so it's a huge privilege, but 
crikey, I am but one cog in an enormous machinery of government that's made this bill happen. And, you know, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, also the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, were absolutely critical in ensuring that this legislation was developed. So it, it's, it's a, it, I think all of us have played our part. But the one thing I've noticed in my relatively short time in government is that everything that actually happens is always driven by one named minister. And that minister, yes, has to gather support from prime minister and from um, outside bodies and from within parliament. But you're very modest to say you're a small cog. I don't think anything that really gets pushed through happens without that minister who runs with it. But this is the next bit you've got is, of course, Royal Assent, we hope, is coming very soon. And then it's the implementation. And it's not just about getting the bill, is it? It's about how that bill then takes effect, which is, I assume, under your auspices once it's completed. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, a law can only achieve so much. It's about how it helps that that person fleeing an abusive relationship, how they look after their children. You know, how, all of that network of consequences that flows from that flow from uh, an abusive relationship, and so. Uh, yeah, that is absolutely the next challenge for government. I think, you know, clearly, already we have plans uh, underway. Um, we have, for example, been able to announce specific funding for councils to help with specialist services um, for people in refuge and safe accommodation. That's going to be rolling out uh, as soon as Royal Assent has passed. Um, we're also able to help through non-legislative means. So um, this year, in January, the, again, the height of third lockdown, um, we announced the Ask for Annie code word scheme, um, which doesn't need a law to pass it, but it means that anyone, any victim of domestic abuse who walks into a Boots or a Superdrug or other independent pharmacies that are taking uh, part, they, they use the code word and they will then get immediate help. And so it's, and we know this has already been used. Um, with the many victims across the country have already used this scheme, which is an extraordinary, um, you know, avenue of support. And so it's it's through legislation, but also practical measures that we can make a real difference. And with the bill, the definition I think is, is what is in a way the most important part because everything else flows from that. Once people have a clear understanding of what domestic abuse is, the many forms it can take, how it can affect people, then that will inevitably help commissioning of local services. It will help with um, decisions that are made as to perpetrators. Can we remove the perpetrator from the home rather than the victim? Those sorts of decisions will have a huge impact for victims and survivors across the country. And it's in this sense that legislative change then moves societal change. Yes. And, and we're seeing it already with the DA bill, even, you know, um, even now, because through the bill we've been able to, as I say, define domestic abuse. We've been able to clarify the law on so-called rough sex. We've been able to uh, prohibit um, non-fatal strangulation. Uh, in um, circumstances, we've been able to prohibit threats to use revenge porn. And these apply not just in relationships as defined by the bill, but in non uh, circumstances other than those relationships. And that, I think, is a really important line in the sand for some of the issues that women and girls in particular are facing in the 21st century. I think a sign of a good bill is when it's putting into law things that most people would have thought we're in law already. <laughs> and that what you've just been saying are things that I think many people listening to this would be surprised 
were currently not banned and didn't have a legislative response to. And I think that's one of the great strengths of your bill. But thank you so much for talking about it. Uh, it was Bismarck who made the comment about making laws is like making sausages. It's um, <laughs> something you don't want to see done. But actually, I think the more people see how something like the domestic abuse bill is done, the better they understand the processes and the hard work that goes into it. So thank you very much for sharing your experience. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.